You know, for all the anxiety many of us have felt this week, um, I believe our passage today um, ought to give us great confidence that we worship a God who is far bigger and far greater than any pandemic or any, uh, anything. Uh, the passage today, honestly, as I studied it this week in my office and amidst all the chaos, it just this passage, as you read it, it makes the ground you're standing on holy. I mean, this is a, this is, this is a description of God in his fullness. And you hear the Apostle Paul writing these words in the book of Ephesians, and he's just, he, he's so, like he's just amped up as he reads it. And so as we read this passage, I want us to explode with praise in the same way that Paul did. Listen to what Paul says, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, meaning Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." You know, the last few weeks in our worship services in physical person, we have sung that song where it says, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. And I've loved that song the last few weeks as we've sang it. And as Christians, we believe in a God who is mysteriously both one God and three, and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's very hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it ought to lead us to praise. And that is exactly what it happened for the Apostle Paul. He gives glory to the Father when you look in verse 6. He gives praise to the Son, Jesus, in verse 12. He gives praise to the Holy Spirit in verse 14. And the Apostle Paul here, he shows us in Ephesians 1 how each member of the Trinity is working together to accomplish your salvation and mine. And when we stop and consider how much and in such extravagant ways of how God loves us and how he has delivered us from our sin, how he has restored us to new life, that ought to give us joy even in the scariest of circumstances, even like the circumstances we're facing today. And Paul wrote this, that he wrote those words while he was in prison facing uncertainty himself. And what I love about this verse, and we don't get it when we read it in English, is Paul gets so excited as he's writing this. So much so that in the Greek, you actually see that these, all these verses that I just read are actually one long run-on sentence. Like the Apostle Paul would have failed his English class, you know, his, his Composition 101 class with that sentence. 
But Paul, he was just so excited. He couldn't get his words out or even organize them or articulate. He was just, have you ever gotten so excited that you just seem like you can't articulate yourself? That's kind of what's happening with Paul. Like, he's just trying to get it all out. And, you know, sometimes my kids, they get so excited to tell me something that happened to them at school or happened to them at the playground or whatever. And they're trying to tell me, and it's just that they're, they're, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's just going this long. Like, they just can't get it out. And I have to say, kids, slow down. Slow down and tell me what you need to tell me. But they're so excited, and they just can't slow down. And this is Paul in this passage. He's so excited to talk about how he has been adopted by God the Father through the Son and is being guarded by the Holy Spirit. He's so excited to talk about that that he just can't contain himself. And in this sentence, Paul gives a picture of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working together to bring about our salvation. And I love how he explains this to us. He uses the analogy of adoption. You have been adopted as sons. And what we're going to see today is how the Trinity works in our salvation. And we see three things. That the Father adopts and chooses his children. Jesus pays the adoption fees. And the Spirit guarantees the benefits of adoption. So first, it says, first I want you to see that the Father chooses and adopts you. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace which he, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And what Paul says here is that before the world was, God chose you to be adopted as his son and to receive all of the benefits that a firstborn son would receive. An inheritance, a name, an identity, all of those things you receive and they are marked and protected by a loving father. And Paul says that in Christ, or by, the father has chosen to adopt us so that we can become his sons. And somebody said, well, that's kind of sexist. He's not talking, what about daughters? He's not excluding women. It, well, Paul's not excluding women in this passage. This is not a sexist statement. In fact, he's saying that even women can be adopted as sons. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, this is a radically countercultural statement for this time in history. Because only sons were heirs to the inheritance of the father at the time at this time in this culture. Only sons received the inheritance of the father, and the firstborn son received the bulk of it. But now the scripture says that through Christ, the father chooses both men and women to be his heirs, to be recipients of all that is his, all the blessings that are in the heavenly places. You are chosen and adopted by God. And this is, you know, you know what's precisely so beautiful about biblical adoption is that God already has a son, which means that he's not adopting us out of some sense of childlessness or some sense of need or loneliness. God is not lacking. He has no need. He does not need you to be happy. And he does not need you to carry out his mission in the world. He already has a son. He already has an heir. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, makes room for us in his family. That is good news. Everything that the Father has for His Son, Jesus, He is freely giving to us because He loves us and He has chosen us. And in this culture, and in this culture 
Adoption wasn't something that was looked on with, you know, smiles and cuddles and all of that. Adoption would have happened by an older man who was fearful that he didn't have an heir. So this would be an older gentleman who's had all their children, his wife is past childbearing age, and they haven't had any sons. And the man would panic a little bit that he doesn't have someone to pass on his name or his wealth. So what would happen is men in this culture would adopt a male slave. They would take them on as an heir, and they, they would then carry out the family name. And adoption was always a plan B. It was usually not seen as actually being anything really desirable, and it wasn't done out of love, but it was done out of self-preservation on the part of the father. But God, the father, flips this whole thing on his head and says, I already have a son with whom I'm well-pleased, but I will adopt more sons and more daughters because I am gracious and my blessings and my inheritance is limitless, and I want to bestow it upon those whom I love. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, says the New Testament continually points out that I, to our adoption in Christ in order to show us that we really, really are wanted in the Father's house. And I hope you believe that's true this morning, that you are wanted in the Father's presence. And that's good news because most of us know how painful it is not to be chosen. I mean, and you think back to your days in school, in recess, not being picked for kickball not being included in the clique or the popular group. You remember, I, I don't know about you, but I remember when I was in high school, there would be seasons in my life where I would change the way I dressed or I would pretend to like certain types of music that I didn't really like because I wanted to be chosen and fit in with certain types of groups. So I have, there's the cowboy phase. There's, you know, in my life, there's the goth phase. There's the phase where I wanted an earring, but my mom wouldn't let me. There's the phase where I bleached my hair and wore, you know, sunglasses and puka shell necklace and Hawaiian shirts. I, I, ju- we, I just want to be accepted, right? Rejection is painful, and so we will do whatever we can to be chosen and to be accepted by the group. But it, isn't it good news that the God who created you, you don't have to wonder if he if he would choose you. You don't have to wonder if he will accept you. You don't have to change your appearance. You don't have to change anything about who you are other than to receive who he is. And that's good news. That means you can breathe. You can relax and you can rest in your approval from the Father. And then from you're free. And from there you can be who he has called you to be rather than trying to be somebody you're not so that he will accept you. He already accepts you. Now be who he is calling you to be because he's a loving father. The father chose you, he loves you, and he adopted you. But the second thing we see is that Jesus pays the adoption fees. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, verse 7 says. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 11 says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It is Jesus' life and death that makes it possible for us to be adopted. The Father doesn't snap his fingers and make us adopted sons. There's always a cost involved with adoption. My wife and I, our oldest son, is adopted. And when we adopted our son, we wished we could just snap our fingers and have him in our home. But it took many, many years and many, many pounds or many, many stacks of paperwork. And it took lots and lots of money. 
There was a cost to our adoption, and it was painful, and it was long, and it was an arduous journey, but it was worth it because we love our son. But the point is, adoption always costs something, and it costs God the Father greatly. It costs him the life of his beloved son, Jesus. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And you know, most of us, especially maybe you're not a Christian and you're tuning in today, and maybe if you're honest, you're like, I have a hard time with the cross. Like, what, like why the blood? Why would Jesus have to die in order for us to be saved? Couldn't he just make the problem of sin go away? Couldn't he just welcome us into his family without all the bloodshed? Well, that's not a new question. You're not the first person to ask that. Many people have asked that question. You're not alone. And in the 12th century, Anselm of Canterbury was teaching one of his students about God's anger towards sin and how Jesus had to go to the cross to purchase our redemption. And one of his students, who had the unfortunate name of Bozo, asked, he said, Teacher, why didn't God the Father just get rid of sin without all the destruction, without the bloody cross? Why, the, why is the cross necessary? Why is the death of Jesus necessary? And Anselm replied, Bozo, you have not yet considered how heavy the weight of sin truly is. And what Anselm, Anselm said and what the scripture and Christian tradition teaches us is that our sin is so grievous to a holy God that it simply cannot be brushed aside. For a just God to bring justice to the crime of our sin, our rebellion against him, he must pour out his judgment on sin. He must either pour out his judgment on sinful people or on an innocent person who has not sinned, who volunteers to pay the penalty for the sins of others. And that is exactly what Jesus does. He lives a perfect life, one that does not deserve punishment, that one that does not deserve death. Yet he's obedient to the Father and puts himself in the place of sinners to receive God's judgment on sin. He bears the punishment for our sins, though he never sinned himself. And the scriptures tell us that if we will simply humble ourselves and admit our need for, for someone to step in and take our place, then our sins will be forgiven and we will be adopted as sons. See, our salvation, it doesn't simply end with our forgiveness of sins, though. It ends with being adopted. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. Jesus takes our place on the cross. But not only that, we get to stand in his in the presence of the Father. This is what it means to be considered an heir. Jesus is the firstborn son. He earned his inheritance. He earned all the blessings that are in the heavenly places. Yet, we are told that if we believe in him and align our lives with the life of Jesus, his inheritance becomes ours. We become like the firstborn son. We receive the adoption of God. Everything that Christ earned in his life is now credited to our lives. I want you to think about this for a moment. If our inheritance is based upon the life of Jesus, I want you to think about how large of an inheritance that is. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. My mind cannot comprehend that. The scripture says it is ours for the taking. Jesus purchases our adoption with his death but earns our inheritance with his life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to be sin for me and you, so that we might become and we might be, have credited to us the very righteousness of Christ. 
The father adopts, the son purchases the adoption fees, and, the Holy Sp- and, and he earns the inheritance. But then the question is, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You see, the Holy Spirit seals our inheritance and guarantees it. Well, what does that mean? First, verse 13 tells us that he seals our, seals our inheritance, which that what, mean, what that means then is that our inheritance is safe. See, if you're a son, you ought to have an inheritance. Whatever is your father's is yours. See, at my home, I have a last will and testament, and I recently updated it. And it lays out what happens to all my money, all my possessions, all my wealth if I were to die. And my children are listed in that will. Israel, Edith, and Annie, all of them. Everything that is mine is theirs. And when you write a will, if you've ever done this, you know it is meaningless if you write a will. It becomes meaningful and it becomes legally binding when it gets something on it. What is that? It becomes legally binding when it gets a seal from a notary public. And without a seal, that inheritance, that last will, my inheritance is worthless, and it goes to the state. It's just a sheet of paper without that seal from the notary public. But with that seal, it becomes legally binding, and that inheritance becomes real. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Your salvation is secure. Second thing we, see, we know about this is that the Spirit, then, is the down payment for what is to come. Verse 14 says, The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Spirit is given to you as an assurance that you will be given your full inheritance in eternity in the new heavens and new earth. You know, when you rent an apartment in New York City, what do you have to do? You have to put down a deposit, a guarantee, first and last month's rent. And what is that? That's that you are giving your landlord a large sum of money, painfully large sum of money, And that guarantees that even larger sums of money will be on the way. You're giving them something, you give them that deposit, and it assures them that that there is more coming. And the Spirit of God in your life gives you a taste of what is to come, of the life that awaits you in Christ. See, we long for our eternity with God. We long for that moment where we're in the complete presence of God our Father. But the Spirit in our lives and in the lives of people all around us and Christians all around us and in the church, the Spirit in the lives of ourselves and in others gives us a glimpse and a taste of God's, pres- God's eternity and God's salvation in the here and the now. This is why the Spirit is called in the Scriptures the first fruits of our salvation. Because the Spirit is in our lives, we experience a little bit of what is to come and what awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. The new heavens and new earth is a place where there's unity and there's diversity and there's singing and there's joy and there's community. God has given us his spirit and has given us the, his spirit in the church to give us a glimpse of the new heavens and new earth. God is saying through his spirit, I'm going to give you more, but until then, I'm going to be with you until the rest comes. You're going to be completely healed in the new heavens and new earth, but I will stay with you while you are sick because the Holy Spirit is within you. You're going to be free from whatever burden it is that you're carrying in eternity, 
But God says, by sending his spirit into our lives, he says, I'm giving you the spirit to give you the strength to endure that burden today through the power of my spirit. See, the this Holy Spirit of God is the assurance of God's promise that we will be with him forever. God has adopted us through his son, and his spirit guarantees that that adoption is secure and safe and that the inheritance and everything that belongs to Jesus will indeed be ours, both now and in the kingdom that is to come. Verse 13 concludes this way. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now you hear this passage taught and you ask, well, how do we experience the blessings of adoption? Paul says it, it, it is available to those who would believe. And Jesus himself says this same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And when we gather as a church in person, we always take communion. And when we take communion, what we're doing is we're remembering the death of Christ and his resurrection. And we're confessing that we believe those things to be true. And Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be adopted. You'll have a place in the family of God. And if you believe, you can celebrate that you have been chosen by God. And you can celebrate that all the blessings of adoption belong to you. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. If you're tuning in this morning and you're like, well, I don't know what I believe about faith. And I don't know how to gain God's approval. How do I know that, I'm, that God accepts me and approves me and would want me as his child? And how do I know that God could give me his blessing? It's clear right here in the scriptures. You believe. You believe. To those who believe, the Holy Spirit was given as promised. So my, I think about my oldest son, whom we adopted. What did he do to earn his adoption? He didn't do anything. He just receives it by being our son. This is how you receive the adoption of God. You receive it in faith, believing that Jesus rose, died your death and, and that God the Father raised him from the dead and that the Spirit can live in your life. I want us to take a moment to pray and then I want to lead you in communion. If you have some bread or some juice in your home, you can lead your children, your family, or the people around you um, in communion. And I know that's maybe weird for some of you, but I think that these times, uh, I don't think that this is a time where we stop receiving the body and the blood of Christ. And so I would encourage you to grab some bread, grab some juice. And if you have some children in, if you have children in your family, I want you to use this time to remind them what you're doing. And you, what you're doing is if you're a follower of Jesus, you're showing your children what you believe. And you believe that the body of Christ was broken so that we could be made whole. And you believe that the body or that the blood of Christ was poured out so that we could be filled. And I would encourage you, if your children don't yet comprehend that, if they haven't made a profession of faith, you just let them watch you and don't let them participate. This is something that believers participate. And one day you can, you can tell them that one day when they believe these things for themselves, they can participate with you. So I, I'm going to lead you in, I'm going to say a prayer and then I'm going to lead you in a virtual communion for the first time ever in the history of my ministry and probably in your life. But here we go. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel that you adopted us. I thank you that before the foundation of the world, you looked in to all of eternity and you saw my life. And you chose me, knowing that I would, the times I would be unfaithful to you, knowing the times I would fail, and knowing the times that I would just, you chose me. 
not because of anything I've done, but because of who you are. And God, I know that your choosing has nothing to do with who we are and what we've accomplished, God, but you choose those who believe. And God, I pray that anyone hearing this message would believe and call upon the name of Jesus and receive his adoption. And God, we thank you for the body and the blood of your son that was shed and broken on the cross so that we could have new life. And Jesus said in his final night with his disciples, he said, whenever you eat and drink of this, do this in remembrance of me.